Let me start off by asking this question. How many of you remember Chariots of Fire? Now, it, it was based on the story, in case you don't know this, because I know some of you were born after 1978, but it's the true story of, of two athletes who competed in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, one guy was named Harold Abrams. He was a, a Jewish man from, from England who struggled and strained, trying to ever even be able to compete um, on any kind of a level because of, just because of his race. But the other guy that I, I want to really focus on this morning, especially to kind of tie in what we talked about last week and what Paul was doing in, in, in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, is a man named Eric Little. Now, again, if you've seen it before, you understand who, who he is at least a little bit. But one of the things that marks him was that he was truly a, a man of God. He was a man that followed Jesus. He was a passionate follower of Jesus. Uh, mostly Scotland claims him, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think what's so cool about him, and this may sound maybe just a, a little bit cheesy when I say this, when he ran, he truly ran to the glory of God. He was a man that was marked out, like Paul talked about last week, as one who pursued hard after Jesus. And so if you haven't seen that movie, I think it won like four Academy Awards. I, I would encourage you to see it. Now, now apart from that movie, though, and, and definitely also due to other people, Eric Little actually almost got lost to history. But at the time he competed, you got to understand this, before he was immortalized in this movie, Chariots of Fire, he was one of the most famous sprinters in the world. In fact, in 1923, before the 1924 Olympics, he kind of emerged in a way where at the AAU Games in London, he ran the 100 and 200, setting records that stood for 35 years. To say he was fast is an understatement, and anybody that's called the Flying Scotsman, which is what he was called, had better be fast. Where his fame really exploded, though, and this is what the movie Chariots of Fire captures, is when he decided that because the, the, in the Olympic Games, the 100 meters and the 4 by 100 would be on a Sunday, which at that time he just believed he couldn't do, he shifted his events to the 200 and the 400. Now, it was remarkable alone that he won the bronze medal in the 200, but really what stuck out was the day that he ran the 400, by far not his best event, he not only won by almost five meters, but he also set a world record of 47.6 seconds. For those of you that don't understand that, he ran almost 18 miles an hour for 400 meters. That's, that's fast. Now, that, that speed that he had was amazing. But let me just tell you something. While he was a runner that was incredible, that wasn't the only aspect of who he was that marked him as this follower of Jesus Christ. And probably his most famous quote, I want to I read this to you. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I love this part of it. I feel God's pleasure, his pleasure. To give it up, he said, would be to hold him in contempt. And from there, he knew that he needed to run in the 1924 Olympics. So, so there are two things in this quote that I, that, I, that I absolutely love that I want to draw to the surface to kind of help us connect back to what Paul taught about last week. First, Little's life, like we learned about in, in, in looking at Paul's life, was laser-focused upon Christ, even in running. He knew that, that bringing honor to God 
didn't just happen on the mission fields of China, but we know this in all of life. And, and this is what's crazy. He saw that he was created by God to run and to run fast. But, but his burning passion in life came from, from where he was born. He was born to missionaries in China and his greatest passion was to turn to the return to the land that his parents had committed their lives and committed his life as well then to how he might help those within the Chinese world understand the gospel. And just like running, his pursuit of Christ was ferocious and it was single-minded. So after the Olympics in 1925, he, he chose to forego all the fame that he had in athletics. He could have even been a professional rugby player. And he set sail for China. He left without a wife, but in 1934, he, he took his first furlough and returned back and married a young lady named Florence McKenzie. She went with him to China, but in 1941, when the Japanese were beginning to, to press down upon them in, in, on, in mainland China... He sent his wife and his kids back to Canada where she was from to keep them safe. But he, because of his passion and love for God and his passion and love for the Chinese people, he stayed there and he continued to serve amongst the poor, which was his life. In 1943, he was confined to a Japanese internment camp along with countless others at that time. And true to Eric's nature, he quickly began to serve those incarcerated with him with just an absolute tenacity, with a joy. And even when fellow missionaries begin to kind of form themselves into cliques and begin to think about only themselves and how they might survive, let me just give you some of the things that, that people said about him from the camp. They said that Eric Little was somebody that at the end of his life even, he aided the elderly. He taught the Bible to countless people within the camp. One guy even talked about a day in which a bunch of boys got into a fight, so he redirected their energies and created a rugby game for them to engage in. He taught science. He did all kinds of things. But he was so beloved within the camp that the kids and the students actually referred to him, and I love this, as Uncle Eric. In 1945, however, about the age of 43... Right before the camp got liberated, Eric Little got a brain tumor. Now, we don't know how he got it at that particular time, but this is what we do know. He was buried behind the, the officer's quarters at that particular time in a, in a simple grave that was wooden that just had his name on it, put in just in polish, Eric Little. Now, whether on the track of the internment camps, this is what you need to know about him. He was focused. He was everything that we talked about last week. He was someone that was driven, someone that had this single-minded intentionality to be after Jesus Christ. He was what Paul talks about here in, in even Philippians 3.8. He was somebody that whatever gain he had, he counted all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He was a man that we could just say he went after it. So that was, that was last week. Paul wanted the Philippians, and I think even too, he would even say to us, he wants us today to have this life that's running with single-minded ferocity after Jesus Christ, just like Eric Little. What is interesting, by the time, though, that we get to 4.1, and if you've got your Bibles, you can just turn there and look down at it, Paul so also wanted his readers not just to have this one thing of pursuing hard after Christ, but he also says to his readers, stand firm 
which to be honest is kind of confusing. How do we charge hard without right, looking behind to the upward call of, of, of Christ Jesus? And then also he says here in 4.1, stand firm. So we need to get this, this seeming contradiction. I think we need to unravel a little bit if we're going to understand Paul's passion for Christ and his desire that we might have the same passion for Jesus. Now, the, the image of standing firm, just to kind of help you understand it, that he's talking about here in 4.1, he leaves the image of sports and he takes us in our minds to a battlefield. What he's trying to conjure, I believe, in our imaginations is the, the image of this phalanx and Roman soldiers that are locking shields, standing their ground together, not breaking ranks at all, even if they face external or, or even internal opposition or attack from what's going on. Last week, you may have kind of left thinking that, man, somehow I can pursue Christ like Paul pursued Christ, but I can do it by myself. However, I think in this idea of standing firm and the way that he uses it, even the plural nature of how he writes it, Paul's going to make sure that we understand we can't. So while each soldier in this army is called to focus on the one thing, we can't fulfill the mission that God has given to us alone. We must together stand firm. And by the way, I think this is the idea that's this very important to this 100 days that we're going to go after pursuing Christ that we talked about on the video that we shot on Friday. And I think in essence, Paul wants us on the battlefield together. Everyone needs each other in this phalanx of locked shields. So this week, what I want to do is, is I want to take and I want to turn the question around a little bit. Last week, I tried to ask, ask the question, how do we pursue Christ like, like Paul pursued Christ? How do we get that heart? But let's try to answer a little bit different question this week of how do we stand firm together? Now, what is convenient, I love this, and it's going to make it pretty simple. When you look down here at, at verse 17, he gave one answer to the question, how do we stand firm together? And it's in this idea of imitation. Just one thing. Now, in this passage today, no doubt, there's, there's, there's only one point. But look at verse 17 so you can kind of see this with me. This one thing of how he's going to build towards 4-1 so that we might stand firm. Brothers, he says, Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, again, he wasn't calling everyone like to, to, to focus on, on him and him alone as the only model that we could follow. Why? Because this gospel, this following after Jesus is much bigger than Paul. We know from chapter 2 that the ultimate example was Jesus Christ but I love what he does here. Paul says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The us includes Timothy. It includes Epaphroditus. And I think even Paul would say it includes Eric Little. And I think he would even go farther and say, it is any of those around you in your local church that have that same ferocity, that single, same single-mindedness of knowing Jesus Christ. So that's what he's getting after here. There are no lone rangers in the walk with Jesus Christ. We are to be together in this and we're to model ourselves after those who are pursuing after Christ with that kind of single-minded devotion. Now, saying that, what Paul's going to do, though, is, is he's going to create two realities. He's going to create a group of people that we should not follow, that we should not imitate our lives after because they're the opposite of what Paul's talking about. And then he's going to create this other side that he's going to say, this is what those who follow Christ, like I'm talking about, are. Those are the ones that you are to follow. 
Now, almost immediately we see this in Paul's call. He brings out the negative side of it. It's going to be negative here for a little bit. Just go with me because it's going to be good news here in a little bit. But what Paul's talking about is, unfortunately, as many, he says, live as those. Look down at verse 18. They are enemies of the cross. Wow. In other words, they may have the appearance of living for Christ, but in reality, they are the exact opposite of Paul's example. Their walk, their way of life, it's an absolute antithesis to who Paul is in his walk. And notice verse 18, there's a lot of them. I don't think he's trying to just scare them out of nowhere because we know this. When you, when you look at this text, I don't think he was saying that the Philippian church necessarily has been infiltrated by them, but the answer is not infiltrated by them yet. The tone of this passage that these enemies across who were once, I think, on the same mission with Paul, they'd exited from the truth of the gospel. And broken, Paul literally writes, and I found this in a guy's commentary. I thought it was so powerful when he said, and he translated it, I speak weeping. Paul wasn't hard and cold. Instead, there were tears running down his face as he wrote the letter with with these names and these faces of people in the back of his head. All these ones that he had walked with that now lived and denied for all that the cross stands for. Specifically, he was sad that they used to be ones who ferociously and single-mindedly pursued Christ, but now what they saw it as in some ways is just foolishness. I believe both from the text and even my, my, my own personal experience, I don't even think these people even probably knew that they were doing it. They didn't even realize, but over time, they'd become toxic within the church and toxic to what the church's mission was, and slowly they just became enemies of the cross. And I think looking down here so that we avoid ever becoming these enemies of the cross, or I would even say this, what Paul's going after there, so that we don't in, we don't in any way imitate those who are enemies of the cross. In verse 19, what he's going to do is he's going to bring a lot of clarity to this to help us understand how it is that we're supposed to identify these people. Now look at the first phrase, because it's, a men, it's intended to just absolutely grab the readers and the, those people that are listening to this letter being read. It literally reads... Their end, and there's actually no verb there. It just says their end, destruction. Now, again, whether they knew it or not, that's what Paul is saying is their destiny. I think the reason this would have shocked those who read this letter was because they knew that if they stood firm with them, if they chose to imitate their life, if they, to use our words, stand firm, lock shields with them in this phalanx of the church, They were locking shields with enemies of Christ and they too then would be headed towards this destruction. I think that's why it would have captured their attention. Unlike Paul, unlike Timothy, unlike Epaphroditus, even unlike Eric Little, who were ferociously single-minded in their pursuit of Jesus Christ and his reward, it's the opposite here. These enemies were pointed in the direction of, and I think we could even translate it, damnation. Paul was in essence pleading with the Philippians not to imitate them. And notice these enemies weren't necessarily outside. They were probably insiders. Paul says, look, don't go with them. 
Further in verse 19, if you keep going on there, we can know who the enemies of the cross are because they're God. And again, there's really no verb there. It just is, they're God, they're belly. On one level, we might kind of laugh, you know, as if somehow maybe Buddha was what he's talking about here. But it wasn't, I don't think, merely praises of the stomach that were the God that he was talking about conclusively. But instead, they were, pour, they were absolutely pouring their lives into and pursuing with single-minded ferocity their own selfish pleasures. And now they've replaced Christ with those. No doubt it, it could have included things like maybe gluttony. That's maybe what it sounds like or sexual sin. But it was probably even more insidious and concealed than those. We generally have our radar right all fixed on the big sins, and we, and we should, but then we tend to miss maybe what we might call the more acceptable, misdirected passions of the flesh, and this is what Paul's getting at there. He not only lays out their destination, but he starts to say they've replaced what should have been a passion for Christ with the things Christ has given them to enjoy him and begun to say these are the things we're going to find our hope in. Now, Paul's going to even go further. These people in verse 19, look at it. It's not only that, but they glory in the shame. The idea here is what would have been done in secret, they unashamedly now did in the open. They've taken the things God had given them to enjoy so that they now might enjoy him. And they've now twisted them and they've made them now their end, what actually they're going after. They've made these things their single-minded pursuit instead of Christ. They were single-minded about maybe we might say in our time their safety and security. But they found it instead in Christ. They found it outside of Christ. They found their comfort outside of Christ. They found their pleasures outside of Christ. And sadly, they were even, we can just see it in here, proud of it. Instead of finding their treasure in Christ alone, they openly found, I would say it this way, to kind of be crass, their comfort in the arms of another. And lastly, when you look down in verse 19, we find that they were facing this destruction. We find out why it is they'd made their God their belly. We find out that they were even proud of it. Why? Look down there. It's because their minds were set on earthly things. Their whole inner disposition was governed by an, an earthly man's wisdom, a kind of approach to life. Going back to Romans, right, they'd exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They'd become fleshy, chapter 8. Their minds were no longer focused on this amazing upward call, but their, their, their gaze now was, was earthbound. It was downward looking. It was, it was set on earthly things. Now, now, just for a second, though, I, I want to slow down here so that we can catch the fullness, I think, of what Paul is saying. We need to understand that the cross, as Paul's referencing here in verse 18, is referencing, that he's referencing here in the Philippians, is maybe not like we think it is. It's not primarily about a way of salvation, though it could be. It's just in this particular context, that's not what he's talking about. Instead, it's about the way or direction of a saved life. So it's not how we get saved he's talking about, but how those who are saved now live their life. It's the cross and the way of life. It's the way now that people pursue Jesus with this single-minded ferocity in the pursuit of the king and the pursuit of his kingdom. It is, I think the way you would say it now, Christ who now becomes this ultimate model of our lives. 
We're to now find our joy in him. We're to find our hope in him. We're to find our reward in him. We're to not find it in these temporal pleasures of this life, as great as they might be. But instead, we find now those temporal pleasures drawing us to Christ. Instead of building our little kingdom, our little personal kingdoms, we join Jesus in building the kingdom. See, when I was thinking about it this way, I was just thinking about, okay, if it's now how the saved live, that means we have these Christ-like, cross-shaped lives that lovingly serve instead of being served. Lovingly sacrifice through turning the other cheek or walking the extra mile. Lovingly becoming all things to all people that by all means we might save some. Lovingly willing to lay, lovingly willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lovingly willing to assume the position of a servant or even the last part of the table for the feast that we were invited to. Lovingly loving our enemies. Joyfully laying down our rights because pursuing Christ, like Paul's talking about here, that he's advocating means that we can't hold on to our rights and Jesus at the same time. As Jesus warned, we can't serve two masters. So we now must be these people who imitate those not now who find their contentment and their end in this world, but those who through this world now, though, find their end only in Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing now. And he's laying out a grave warning. Now, on one level, I get it. If we just finished here, it would be pretty depressing and so I'm so thankful after he cautions the Philippians about all these enemies that could be coming amongst them, Paul switched from those whom he no longer, who we shouldn't follow to those who we should. I love this. Look at verse 20. Who are we supposed to follow? We're supposed to follow those who understand that our citizenship is in heaven. I love that. If we're in Christ we have changed citizenship. And in changing our citizenship, we've moved from an earthbound focus of the enemies of the cross to the heavenly realities of the followers of the way of the cross, like I talked about a little bit ago. The reality is the Philippian Christians were citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They belonged to, to another kingdom apart from what was going on even there in Philippi, and I would even say this, apart from what it meant to be a part of the grand empire, Rome. Now, I think, again, this would have really hit home with those people because Philippi, what it was, was a little kind of outpost, a little colony of this Roman empire. But Paul, he's looking at him on one hand while he wants them to be the best citizens within the Roman empire, within Philippi, he wanted them to make sure that they got that their primary citizenship wasn't Roman if they had citizenship. Their primary citizenship was in heaven. So that's what Paul is kind of getting after. What Paul passionately wants them to embrace is that they were first and foremost citizens of a different kingdom. They were living as citizens in Philippi, no doubt, but... They now were this kind of colony that had landed into Philippi to represent their true ruler. They now had a true king and their Caesar was, or excuse me, their Lord was not Caesar. Their Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. 
So while it might have been an incredible honor to have Roman citizenship, I love how he puts it here. Paul is saying that every Christian that's listening to him, that's reading his letter, even the slaves, they have a higher and more important citizenship that's based on some distant capital, one guy put it, called heaven. And as another scholar I read, I appreciated the way he put it. Just listen to this quote. He said, in the Roman world, citizenship defined both a person's ethical behavior, kind of how he lived there, and one's true allegiance. This meant that when we're talking about the Philippians, they were model citizens in their secondary country because they were like ambassadors representing Jesus in his kingdom. They wanted people to know the true king of all kings, Jesus Christ. That means, and this is important to us, we're to operate in the world in which we live with that same mindset of dual citizenship, never forgetting that our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. It's first and foremost to his kingdom. When we were seized by Christ, verse 12, all other attachments to this age in which we live became absolutely secondary. And everything that we have now is to be radically brought to bear so that it, it represents Christ and his kingdom first. We're to make a name for him. We're to put him on display. Jesus told those following him, right? When he was coming along after him, seek first his kingdom. Seek first God's kingdom. And Paul, in essence, what he's doing is he's saying the exact same thing. Paul believed that Christians should already be living by, by the principles of heaven, following Christ's example that he gave us here on this earth. We are ambassadors. We're representing his kingdom where we live. And this is so important to us. You see, in our time, this way of thinking that, that, that we're talking about here is that we're to operate in the United States of America in such a way that Christ is represented well. We are to have dreams. I want us in Cornerstone to have big dreams, but it's not the American dream. I want us to have the heavenly dream. Sure, we have rights, but we, when we come to know Jesus Christ, our personal rights, they now belong to King Jesus and we're to use them to benefit Christ and for others to flourish. And I would even say this, even at the great expense of ourselves. We are to now be people that have these allegiances where we no longer swear an allegiance to this nation, but our allegiance is only to King Jesus. But however, don't miss me here in saying that. Because our allegiance to King Jesus, I believe, stirs us to be better citizens than those who just simply swear an allegiance to a nation or a government. We're to participate in government, including voting, but not for our own ends. We do so with just this constant, ongoing reminder that our rights, including our right to vote, by the way, doesn't belong to us anymore. It belongs to Christ. So instead, now we vote as King Jesus would have us do so. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Paul wants us to know. Follow those people that get this. Now, as we follow Paul's thought through this, because I want to keep moving through this, the gravity, I think, of our position in Christ as these heavenly, these heavenly citizens becomes even weightier. See, the church is always, look what, he, look what he says here in verse 20, eagerly awaited, but only eagerly awaited one Savior. Look at verse 20. Who is it? 
our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I, I don't know who you're currently believing might save you in this next election. I don't know if it's Trump. I don't know if it's Biden. I don't know if it's Republicans. I don't know who, if, it, if it's Democrats. But as the saying goes, only Jesus saves and candidates, you know this, they're about ready to promise this to the world. They're going to say that the only one that can protect us from whatever evil that's out there that's scaring us. But ultimately, they can't. Now saying that, please vote. Go in, represent King Jesus well in that voting booth. But don't forget this. In November, no matter who wins, King Jesus is still on his throne. He is still reigning. And despite the outcomes, verse 20, only Jesus saves. Now, I think this is Paul's point in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. So in other words, though, our, our, our King Jesus might have been abused. He might have been misused during his time on earth. And no doubt, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to follow the same path. But never forget that. Look what he does in verse 9. Never forget that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here's the good news as we come into this weird election time. There's coming a day when there will be no, camp, no more campaigns, there's coming a day when there will be no more voting. We will no longer argue one day over which political system causes the most flourishing for humanity. The ultimate confession, what he's saying here in verse 20 of chapter 3, is that this universe will come to understand that Jesus, the Messiah, he is truly King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God. He's the one who puts rulers into power. He's the one that takes them out. Only King Jesus is our savior. It's still true today. It'll be true forever. He is now the one who promised to his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when he said all authority, he didn't just mean part of it. He meant all of it. And one day everyone will see that truth. Now look back at verse 19, because there's more to this. I, and my hope is it just builds this joy, because now what I want to do is I want to create kind of a dichotomy between those who we should follow and those whom we shouldn't. Now look at verse 19, whom we shouldn't, so we can see kind of how the opposite of each of the kingdoms are, so we can take this serious. Now look at verse 19. One of them, verse 19, is earthly-minded. Do you see that when you look down there? Now go to verse 20. The other, though, has a citizenship, a a mindset, it may, might be better to put it there, that's in heaven. One of them, verse 19, look down there, glories and shame. The other, verse 21, I love this, doesn't need to seek glory from himself because but one day God will completely glorify him in every facet of who he is as a person. One, verse 19, serves his belly as God. He's consumed with his self, himself. He's consumed with his immediate passions. But look at the other in verse 20, and I love this. Look at it. The other waits. You see that in there? He waits. He's not consumed by his passions. He's not consumed in every different thing. He just waits for the true God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
One verse 19, you can see this has an end in their destruction. The other verses 20 through 21 will inherit forever bodies like Jesus Christ one day that are made ready for eternity and and eternal flourishing on this world, being transformed finally into not only the people that God intends us to be, but the world that he intends it to be. And if that wasn't enough, in a time like ours where it just feels so absolutely out of control, Paul concluded his thoughts, and I love this in verse 21, by stating explicitly what Christ intends to do. Look what he says. By the power that enables him, and here's what he intends to do, to subject all things to himself. This is a beautiful reference to Psalm 8-6, which speaks of God's Messiah coming one day to right all things. So those things may feel out of control. And if I can just be transparent for a second, I think it's going to get more and more out of control in the coming weeks and months. But Christ is bringing all things into subjection. Even though, and let me put it this way, it might not feel like it. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, once said, and I'll just read this quote. Well, it looks like things are out of control. Behind the scenes, there is a God who hasn't surrendered his authority. And let me just put this to anyone or anything. Let me give you a very clear takeaway before we go. If you haven't seen the video that we released on Friday about our fall plan, you need to watch it. For 100 days, starting in September, we hope to bring Philippians 3 to life in a greater way within our church. We're going to seek to make Paul's passion for Christ our passion for Christ. We're going to try to see how it is in following Jesus and pursuing him with single-minded ferocity that we can make this fall a season of truly knowing Jesus. We want all of you to join us. We want all of us to get in there, to to get in that phalanx, to, to lock shields together, to be these ones who stand firm. We want you to be these ones that pursue Jesus Christ with that single-minded ferocity. So please watch the video if you haven't. Let me just say this. Please join us. And one last thing. As we prepare for this just crazy political climate that I think is going to go nuclear in a few weeks, which by the way, thank God he's in control. Remember that we can definitely, we can be disappointed in and even have righteous anger towards elected leaders, but we can do so though without mocking and dehumanizing them. You choose to treat our president or our governor or any other governing authority in any way over us in that way, you are acting just like the enemies of the cross. That's not who the people that are following hard after Jesus are. Number one, it's not godly of any of us. It's undignified. And I would even say this, it is completely out of step with the kingdom of heaven in every way. As social issues just continue, I think, and they are just going to continue to weigh heavily upon our culture. I think they're going to boil over in anger and rage. Let me just, let me kind of just throw this at us. While all the world around us might be getting angry, while all the world around us might be causing, just going in these states of rage, we must stand firm. We must be a phalanx together. We must lock shields. We must be these ones that know and understand in the midst of all these things that our king reigns. 
But being in that together doesn't mean that we make war in any kind of a way on our society. You can't find any place in the New Testament where we're to make war against people in our culture. In fact, all these pastors that keep talking about making war against culture is crazy. Instead, we battle with truth. Man, we battle from our knees. We love our enemies in the hopes that they too will see the beauty of Christ and repent and believe in the King. So in this crazy season, remember, we represent the King of Kings and the Kingdom of Heaven. Therefore, as Paul wrote, and I just want to read this to you in Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Cornerstone, I'm believing that we are going to pursue hard after Jesus Christ for 100 days and we are going to be those lights in the midst of a dark world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for today. Thanks you for your word. Thank you that you've shown us who we are to follow and who we're not to follow. Thank you that you've shown us who we are to be. Father, would you do a work within Cornerstone of continuing to refine and continuing to teach us and show us by your grace and by your truth what it means to be citizens of heaven. Father, would we not buy into all the lies that are around us of trying somehow to fight and war and all the anger and the vitriol, but instead, Father, would our, in our anger, would we not sin? Instead, would we, mis, would we redirect it in ways that aren't misdirected? Would we redirect it towards your goodness and your kingdom and your righteousness? Would we pour our lives in that direction? Fathers, we enter into this time of just seeking to pursue hard after you for a hundred days. Oh, would we get to the end of that and would we see a church that looks more and more like your son, Jesus Christ? Would we have new hope, new joy, new expectations, new goals, new dreams? Would we have a new vision of your son, Jesus, and his kingdom? Would we believe in a deeper way in the power of your Holy Spirit? And would we trust with every aspect of who we are that as God, there is nothing, absolutely nothing outside of your control and that you are enthroned above with angels telling you every day that you truly are the one who reigns over this entire universe. And so, Father, would all those that are hearing me right now, would you place hope in them, joy in them, satisfaction in them, not because this world has anything to offer us but because you have given us yourself in the person of Jesus. So we ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.